You're listening to Ocean Currents, a podcast brought to you by NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary. This radio program was originally broadcast on KWMR in Point Reyes Station, California. Thanks for listening. On Ocean Currents, we look at all aspects of ocean-related issues, explorations, and research, and I am quite fortunate to be sitting here with a woman who has witnessed the raw power of the ocean in her recent endeavor. I'm here with Roz Savage, eco-adventurer and ocean rower, who has recently successfully crossed the Pacific Ocean from San Francisco to Hawaii in her rowboat. You may remember I interviewed Roz last year in 2007 before her first attempt, and we had the opportunity to hear about Roz's story. She made a big career or life shift some years back and left what she calls a conventional life to another of rowing oceans and pursuing something that really meant something to her. She successfully rowed across the Atlantic Ocean a few years back and then set a path for the Pacific. Roz's 25-foot rowboat is equipped with all the necessary safety equipment, communications equipment, and life-sustaining food and some water. Did I mention she is unaccompanied by a support vessel? She has assembled a pretty incredible land-based team to help her on her mission remotely. I have been keeping an eye on this incredible story in the past year and could not resist the opportunity to bring her back to hear about her recent crossing. So welcome, Roz Savage. Great to be back. Thank you. So why did you set the goal of crossing oceans in a rowboat as you set your course for your your life change? It's actually quite... (laughs) Um, a gradual transition. I didn't go straight from the office out onto the ocean. I suppose I was looking for a big project that would resonate with a new value system that I was developing at that stage. I'd realised that the materialistic lifestyle wasn't really working for me. I suddenly realised there wasn't much sense in doing a job I didn't like to pay for things I didn't need. So um, I had really transitioned out of that lifestyle, but was fairly rootless for a while, really just looking around, trying to find the perfect project for me, something that would be environmentally low impact, that would be sufficiently unusual that people would actually be interested in coming to hear me speak about it or buy the book about it. And somehow ocean rowing just really seemed to fit the bill. I can't even really claim any credit for the idea. It was almost like the idea found me rather than the other way around. And once the idea had found me, there was no way it was going to let me go. So um, even though I tried to push it out of my mind, it persisted until eventually I realized I was just going to have to do this crazy thing. Now that you've crossed the Atlantic and finished the first leg of your Pacific crossing, have your reasons for rowing changed? I wouldn't say that the reasons have changed at all. Um, It's really quite amazing how consistent the reasons still are with the original ideals that brought me to ocean rowing. But I would say that I'm becoming much clearer about my message, especially on the environmental side. I think I've always been very clear um, about the kind of inspirational, even spiritual reasons behind my rowing. But I've really been on a fairly steep learning curve about the environmental aspects of it. And I feel like I'm really honing in now on what my particular environmental mission is. And if I can just try and sum that up for you. 
I think that there is so much bad environmental news out there at the moment that there are times when it's easy to feel quite overwhelmed and quite hopeless and despairing about it all. I know certainly I sometimes feel that way. And in the past, I have felt that there's nothing I can do as an individual that's going to have any real impact on these huge problems. But I spotted this year that there's actually a really interesting parallel between my rowing adventures and what we can each do as individuals for the environment. Um, it took me about a million oar strokes to get from San Francisco to Hawaii, which is an awful lot. And if I'd have stood there in San Francisco saying, well, one oar stroke isn't going to get me anywhere, so what's the point? Then I wouldn't have got anywhere. But you take a lot of really tiny actions, and through the power of accumulation, they really can add up to something very important and very significant. So if you take that metaphor and apply it to the environment, I really believe that every single one of us as individuals is empowered to make a difference if we just understand that the decisions we make as consumers day after day after day, they really do add up. And it's not just our own actions, but what we do spreads ripples. Other people see how we're behaving in the supermarket or in the coffee shop. If we take in our reusable grocery bags and our reusable mugs instead of using disposable throwaway items, other people will see what we're doing and we'll be setting a good example. And I really do think that that's how we will manifest change and hopefully that will lead to a, a greener future and a healthier planet. That's wonderful. I was just at the Bioneers Conference in San Rafael this past week and I was stunned by that very philosophy that you just mentioned because the folks that are there have that in mind and everybody had their reusable water bottle, their reusable mm. coffee mug and their bags and the conference itself was hosted in such a sustainable way. There was so little waste, if any waste at all. And it was just amazing to be in an atmosphere like that and realizing, wow, this really could be our reality That's in fantastic. just a few years. And I, I really, when you, when you look at those things, like using your reusable water bottle um, and you have your, your water filter jug so that you're not having to buy bottled water, those things, once you get in the habit, have such a tiny, tiny little effect on your quality of life. They're not really going to make life any more difficult it's just a matter of finding those things that we can do that's not going to make our lives any worse, but can have potentially an enormous impact on the environment. So my message for the first stage of my row was about plastics, um, because a lot of plastic does end up in the oceans. And as I was rowing past the North Pacific garbage patch, it made sense to focus on that for stage one. And I saw firsthand in Hawaii, when we went and did a beach clean-up, just how much of that plastic trash is washing up on the beaches. And it really is, a, that is bad news. But um, hopefully we, we did show what people can do to avoid making the problem any worse. Um, the message for stage two of the row is going to be about green energies and going carbon neutral. What each of us can do to reduce our reliance on um, fossil fuels and move towards more sustainable sources of energy. 
And then stage three will be about um, habitat destruction. But because I always like to put a positive spin on it, it will be about how we can avoid contributing to that destruction. And your boat actually is an example of sustainable energy. I understand it's mostly or completely solar, and that's how you're generating your energy for the electronics on your boat? Well, unfortunately, the boat itself is actually human-powered rather than (laughs) solar-powered. But yes, all (laughs) all my electronics are solar-powered. It doesn't make the boat go any faster. It really makes me laugh when people say, wow, your boat looks so high-tech. Basically, you paint anything silver and it's going to look high-tech. But really, it comes (laughs) down to two oars and a sliding seat and a rudder. Uh, but yes, all the electronics are solar powered. Uh, I've got six solar panels on board. And for the next stage of the row, it'd be fun to get a few um, other examples of ways of recharging things. Like you could get wind up rechargers for your um, for your laptop um, or for your mobile phone, although my mobile phone obviously doesn't work in the middle of the ocean. Uh, so I think there are a few other fun things that I could do to make my boat a little showcase for all these fun little ways in which we can reduce our reliance on dirty energy sources and move towards clean ones. Going back to last year a little bit, after we last talked and after your first attempt, you were unexpected, brought back to land. And what did you need to do to get over that and re-prepare yourself to get out again this year, um, leaving from San Francisco? Uh, Well, it was a bit of an emotional recovery. Um, I was quite possibly the Coast Guard's most reluctant rescuee ever. Um, I hadn't called them, so that was all a bit unfortunate. Um, But moving swiftly on, um, I did make some modifications to my boat after that. Um, The issue out there was that when I ran into heavy weather, some of the previous modifications we'd made had altered the centre of gravity of the boat, so it became rather too top-heavy. So in 20-foot waves, it started capsizing, which is not much fun. It's a bit like being in a car wreck repeatedly. (laughs) So in order to avoid that, uh, we added some extra depth to the skeg of the boat, and we also put 200 pounds of lead into the bottom of the, the hull. And the boat performed fantastically this year. Not only did those changes give some extra stability to the boat as regards its uh, movement from side to side, but they also seemed to help with the steering and control of the boat. But even despite that, it was still pretty brutal trying to get away from the California coast. I got swept a long way south, and I developed this very close relationship with 124 degrees west this (laughs) summer. I crossed it five times in all. Um... I crossed it going from east to west, and then I got blown back, crossed it again, got blown back again, and finally, at the third attempt, managed to break free of the California coast. And after that, started ticking off the lines of longitude quite regularly every couple of days. But it took me six weeks just to get from 122 degrees to 124 degrees west. And that was a real lesson in patience and persistence, I can tell you. Yeah, that's a true uh, time of the Pacific Ocean that time of year because that's our spring upwelling season. And I remember you left at a time where it was just calm and perfect and you Mm. were going to get a couple days to get out, but then that wind kicked up again. Yes. Yeah, my weatherman did a fantastic job and... um, It was wonderful being able to leave from underneath the Golden Gate Bridge because those opportunities come up very rarely. And um, I was really quite prepared to leave from almost anywhere on the California coast where it would be calm enough. And it was just absolutely fantastic that that opportunity arose at the Golden Gate Bridge. So I left at uh, midnight on 25th of May on the Memorial Day weekend 
and it was a beautiful calm night and we've got this beautiful film footage where the the orange lights of the bridge are glinting off the water it looks like um Christmas glitter it's really pretty and my little boot as I uh, head out under the Golden Gate Bridge and out into the darkness beyond it was really quite spectacular how does it feel what are we what are you thinking about those first few hours when you're leaving in the dark what what are some of the things that are going through your mind um you're really trying not to think about the two and a half thousand miles that lie ahead of you I really work very hard on blanking that out of my mind I focus on what I need to do in the present moment and I also think about what it's going to be like arriving at my destination in Hawaii I need to have that daydream like the carrot on the stick to keep me going and I need to be focused in the present moment on the rowing the process that's going to get me there but if I think about anything between those two points it's a guaranteed recipe for kind of mental meltdown. Mm -hmm. And I actually try and apply that to a lot of things in my life because I, I take on a lot of things that are quite challenging, like writing the book or working on the documentary film. And sometimes you can really get quite phased if you think about the hugeness of the challenge that lies ahead. So it's good to have a list or to be aware of what you need to do, but really just to stay focused on the present moment. I think the other thing I was thinking about as I headed out under the bridge was I'm tired <laughs> already <laughs> um, because I only had 36 hours notice that this weather window had opened up and although I thought I was pretty much ready to go at a moment's notice suddenly when it's that imminent you realize all the things that you still need to do I had to get the cottage where I'd been staying I had to get that all packed up I had to repack the entire boat fill up the water ballast bags and I had so much to do I'd barely slept the night before and then I've been awake all through that day and it's been a really hectic day of final preparations and then I'm setting out at midnight and I know I'm not going to get any sleep until at least the night after because I've got to get out and clear the shipping lanes. So um, it was really important actually, especially just then, not to be thinking even 24 hours ahead, but just concentrating on the right here and now and try not to think about how long it's going to be before I get a decent night's sleep again. These shipping lanes actually was another question I had for you. How do you prepare for interactions at sea or potential encounters as far as meeting big container ships? Is there a way for them to see you on the radar? How about it at nighttime and what type of preparations do you do for that? I do have a see me device it's called on my boat which is supposed to make me look bigger on the radar and I know that um later on in my crossing when I had a rendezvous at Ocean that I actually wanted to have, uh, that was very useful. Um, I'll tell you about that later on. Yeah. Um, generally, when I see a container ship um, or a, an oil tanker, I pretty much hope that they don't see me. Provided I can see them, I can make sure they're not going to hit me. And I really don't welcome company mm -hmm. out on the water. I don't really want them coming over to check me out um, just in case they accidentally run me over. So I kind of go into stealth mode. Um, I don't get on the, I don't turn the radio on. I don't initiate contact. Um, 
there were a couple of fun encounters out there that uh, were, were really great, but those were with much smaller vessels. How many vessels did you encounter on this crossing? It just, it's... It seems that you cross the Pacific, you're not going to run into anybody. But the reality is we know there's a lot of folks crossing the ocean, either in a sailboat or big container ships. And how many folks did you run into that you weren't expecting to? Um, I, In the whole crossing, I was out there 99 days, and I probably saw seven or eight other vessels. But the vast majority of those were within the first few days as I was leaving San Francisco. Closest to the San Francisco City. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, you've drifted south for a little bit, and you mentioned earlier that you had water ballast to fill. Did that water ballast come useful to you later in your row? Absolutely, yes. Um, actually, just to take a step back for a moment, do you sure. mind if I could tell you about something that happened just after I left San Francisco? Yes, please do. Because um, some of your listeners might find this one um, a fun story. So... Um, about 30 miles west of San Francisco, of course, you've got the Farallon Islands. And so I'm rowing past there on like my, my second day out at sea. And suddenly I see this little boat coming across the waves towards me. And I'm like, oh, no, I'm in trouble. I've strayed into the marine <laughs> sanctuary and they're coming to tell me off. Uh, but it turned out it was these two extremely bored marine biologists who'd been on the Farallon Islands for goodness knows how long, monitoring the bird life and the, the sea life there. And um, suddenly looking through their binoculars, they see this bizarre little boat rowing past and they decided to come over to check me out. And they were just so excited about what I was doing. So they actually went back to go and fetch some interns who were also working there. And when they came back out, they brought me some bananas and some M&Ms and some trail mix. And they wrote a lovely blog about me. And um, they actually told me that it was the most exciting thing that happened to them in months. <laughs> well, I guess it was a bit different from, from the usual. Uh, so that was really great fun. And yeah, later on, I had um, a really interesting encounter with another um, vessel. Um, I had a bit of bad luck out there on the ocean this year. Um, I got about um, five weeks into my row and my main water maker is an electric one that runs from my solar panels and um, it's got an electric feed pump that sucks in the seawater and through reverse osmosis filters it to produce um, fresh water for drinking and bathing. And um, unfortunately, like most electronics, it does not, not take kindly to be swamped in seawater. So one day, after all this rough weather, when I opened up the, the hatch where this water maker lives and discovered that it was mostly full of water, I realised this was extremely bad news. And sure enough, over the following couple of weeks, it gradually deteriorated as the innards corroded until eventually it just sputtered to a halt and died. So at that point, I switched over to my backup water maker, which is a manual one, um, and I w- would have to pump that for a, at least three, four hours a day to produce enough drinking water. So I was using that and my reserves of water. But in fact, the manual water maker then broke. It sprang a leak and wasn't producing fresh water anymore. So at this point, I'm down to just my reserves. And I still had enough to last me for about six weeks at that point, which might just have been enough to get me to Hawaii, but it was going to be really nip and tuck. And you don't really want to be rationing water when you're rowing 12 hours a day in the mm-hmm. tropics. So um, I was obviously quite concerned about this, but I didn't want to put out um, a general 
news bulletin about the fact that I was running low on water. I was still a little bit stung by last year's experience when um, I was unwillingly rescued. Um, so I kept pretty quiet about it because I just had this spooky feeling that something really special was going to happen, that I was going to get a resupply, but it wasn't going to be from a big container ship or a big oil tanker. And a few weeks later, people started putting comments on my website saying, do you realise that the junk raft is gradually catching up with you and you're, in, you're at a very similar latitude? Now, the junk raft is, um, was out there um, manned by a couple of guys from the Algalita Foundation, which is based in Southern California, and they were also out there to raise awareness of plastic pollution. So they'd put together this amazing craft uh, made out of 15,000 empty water bottles lashed together into two pontoons with a grid of masts to form a kind of a deck and their cabin was the fuselage of a Cessna aircraft and they had this big sail and it looked like something out of Mad Max. It was the most incredible vessel you've ever seen. And so I connected with them by sat phone and gradually over the next few days we managed to get our courses kind of in alignment and we finally rendezvoused when I was about two weeks away from Hawaii. And um, their voyage was taking them a lot longer than they'd expected. So they were actually running out of food. They'd been rationing from quite early on, whereas I had tons of food. Meanwhile, I'm running out of water and they've still got plenty. So in a very surreal mid-ocean meeting, um, they finally caught up near enough to me. Um, and I actually turned around and rode back towards them for an hour because they were catching up with me so slowly and uh, we met up one evening and had a dinner party this is insane on the ocean it was so surreal it really was uh, you hadn't seen anybody in how many days oh months. months i mean like two months um ever since i saw the board marine biologist at the farallon right. islands um and it really felt magical apparently uh, they'd been trying for four days to catch a fish because they'd promised me this fresh fish <laughs> supper which i'd really been looking forward to and for four days they hadn't managed to catch a fish but then when i actually went on board uh, one of the guys joel hopped overboard with his spear gun and within half an hour had caught this fantastic big mahi mahi and um Within half an hour, it was in the pan, and half an hour later, it was mostly in my stomach. Um, I'm sure I only had four helpings, but the guys tell me I had five. Anyway, it was the best fish I had ever tasted. It was wonderful, and they just treated me like a princess, and it was so wonderful to be there. The only thing we were missing was a, a few cold beers, but it was really great, and we had such good conversation about the environment and comparing experiences out there. And they showed me um, they'd been trawling for plastic out right. there. They had this little uh, net um, that they trailed behind the, the boat. And um, it's sad to say, but they actually found that they were catching more plastic than organic matter. They end up with the, the phytoplankton and the zooplankton, mm -hmm. but more plastic by weight than these are uh, the creatures and um, the vegetables out there. And that's just a very, very sad statistic. But it was um, great for me to actually see firsthand what it, was, what it was like out there. I'd seen on calm days, I could see these tiny little bits of plastic mm -hmm. suspended throughout mm. the, the upper layers of the water. 
But to actually get that statistic from them and see it with my own eyes, what they were catching, was quite quite a sobering thought. Um, but yeah, it was an amazing evening, and we ended up doing some joint uh, press conferences together once we got to Hawaii. That's and great. Um, I've been in touch with them since, and a uh, great couple of guys. And we've definitely got more. We got the message across to more people by combining our efforts than I think either of our crews would have done independently. So two completely independent efforts, yet meeting up randomly on the ocean and and fixed your problem, fixed their problem. That's that's quite a story. Absolutely. And it was it was very good for my dignity and self-respect that I was able to help them out as much as they were able to help me out. Because it's, um, it's not good for my self-esteem to be seen as the damsel in distress. <laughs> so um, they very much appreciated the food. Apparently Marcus ate three bagfuls of jerky just straight off. <laughs> they were so happy to have some different food. That's great. <laughs> Speaking of food, what other types of food do you pack in your boat? I mean, do you prepare for a calorie expense um, as far as rowing 12 hours a day? or I, I do do my calculations, but it's actually a bit more um, flexible than that. Um, so I, I grow my own bean sprouts. There's a, a San Francisco company called Sprout People who gave me um, a Sprout Armo pot, which makes it so easy to grow your own bean sprouts. Like In two days, um, after you've put in your peas, beans, lentils and things, you've got these really nice, crunchy, germinated pulses. And I mix that up with some tahini and namashoyu sauce and some almonds and sunflower seeds. And that makes a great lunch. And a friend of mine who lives in Sausalito made me some raw food crackers. She makes them in a dehydrator, which keeps the enzymes alive. So those are super healthy. Um, I also eat lots of Lara bars, um, which are just raw food, nut and seed bars. And then in the evening, it's not quite so healthy, but I do have a hot meal. I boil up some water and... Um, rehydrate a freeze-dried meal. Um, so overall, I eat extremely healthily out there, and I'm well away from temptation as well. Um, all my usual weaknesses, like cafe lattes and um, muffins, are not available out there. So it's a great opportunity for a detox. And I, I'm very proud of this. I actually was tested at 11% body fat when wow. I arrived in Hawaii, which is kind of, for a woman, that's way up there amongst the, the serious endurance athletes. Fantastic. Congratulations. That well, was I, I can't really take any credit it. for it because <laughs> I, I just, um, I can resist everything except temptation. So I just leave all the temptations behind on dry land. Well, we're coming up on a half hour break here. So we'll come back in just a little bit. We've been talking with Roz Savage, an ocean rower, talking about her recent crossing of the Pacific Ocean from San Francisco to Hawaii. And when we come back, we'll learn a little bit more about the rest of the Pacific that she still has yet to go. So please stay with us. So I'm back here with Roz Savage, an ocean rower who has recently just crossed part of the Pacific Ocean from San Francisco to Hawaii, and she's here in the studio with us at KWMR. Roz, I just wanted to go back to some of the things associated with your boat that you may not have anticipated, or you probably did, but your 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 vessel is a little bit slower going and probably is a potential habitat for 
animals like pelagic barnacles and whatnot. Did you look over the side at any point and discover you had anything traveling with you that was getting a free ride from Ra's Savage? Barnacles were definitely an issue. Those gooseneck barnacles um, do grow on the hull of the boat, and I had to go over the side several times to scrub those off so they didn't slow me down too much. Um, and there were also just some tiny little fish that would kind of gravitate towards the boat. I didn't see so many larger fish when I went over the side, but I didn't uh, use the face mask this time. Um, I actually didn't see as many creatures as I would have liked. Just past the Farallons, I did see about 30 dolphins one day, and there's um, actually a short video on YouTube that I posted from the boat where um, you could just, the soundtrack is pretty much all me squealing with excitement <laughs> as these dolphins just cruise through the waves around my boat. It was just absolutely fantastic to see them. And then there was another day when I saw about five whales came by, and um, that was pretty exciting too. They were definitely checking me out. They came really close to the boat, like within 10 feet. Wow. So that was great. But I didn't see any turtles this time, which is a bit sad. When I was on the Atlantic, I saw a couple of turtles. Mm -hmm. And I just love turtles. They're a very special creature for me. And um, they really come up very close to the boat. So it would have been nice to have seen some of them. But hopefully I'll get the opportunity to do some diving when I get back out to... Hawaii, and I'd love to see a few turtles. I bet there. you still, you'll see more turtles on your next crossing. Of what seems like the more tropical latitude would be more where there might be turtles. That's right. Well, when I was in Hawaii last November to um, meet with the, the NOAA people there, I went out with um, some paddlers in an outrigger canoe on several occasions, and we saw turtles from, from the outrigger. So, yes, I think I probably will see That's a exciting. few more around the Hawaiian Islands. Now, on your course, you traveled south for a bit along the California coast, but you were offshore, mm -hmm. and then you started crossing there. Did you have any other pelagic wildlife, any seabirds that came to check you out or land on your boat? None of them actually landed on my boat, but I did see birds almost every day out there. Um, I'm afraid I'm not enough of an, or an ornithologist to tell you exactly what they were, but um, it was always nice to see the birds, and they would circle around my boat. And I knew I was getting close to land when um, when I heard them actually calling to each other. It's really weird, but I noticed this on the Atlantic as well, that in mid-ocean, the birds are silent. Hmm. Even when there's more than one, they don't call out. But then when I get closer to land, they seem to start wow. being more vocal. And I have no idea why that might be. And if anybody's got any ideas, I would love to know. Well, that's really interesting. I'll have to start asking around about that. Only an ocean rower would know that. Um, being in such a peaceful place, not having a generated noise, you're pretty silent moving Well, I guess there. the sailors might hear as well, although sails are more noisy than the, the rowing. Um, yeah, I've pretty much just got the roar of the wind. I noticed when I went on board the junk raft, it was so noisy on there because they've got, um, like I say, the, the flotation for the boat was provided by these 15,000 water bottles. And because they're just loosely lashed together in cargo netting, they're constantly rubbing and creaking against each other. So there was this constant din of all these water bottles. And when I got back to my boat that night, it was just so peaceful. <laughs> it was actually really nice. Um, so, yes, I suppose my boat is the uh, the quietest way to cross an ocean. How about bioluminescence? Did you see any glowing oh, yes. lights at night? And that's really pretty. Yes, you can see the, the sparkles from the oars. Was it more intense on the coast? of both places or was it about the same throughout the Pacific? Um, I did notice it more in some places than others. Um, 
I probably actually noticed it more out in the middle because the nights out there can be very, very dark. In fact, I was quite surprised just how many nights were overcast and days. A lot of days I, I didn't see much sunshine, probably only 50% of the time out there. And I, I get a lot of comments about how I don't look too sun damaged, um, which is amazing because I am actually quite fair skinned, being a bit of a kind of English rose complexion. Um, but I think it's probably because there just wasn't that much sunshine. Mm -hmm. And this time around, I did have a tiny little bimini on my boat, which I didn't have on the Atlantic. We actually, we called it my thong because it was just <laughs> like this narrow little triangle of fabric. It doesn't provide any wind assistance at all um, because that would be against the spirit of ocean rowing. Um, but it does provide a very welcome little bit of shade, which especially around midday is... Um, it really helps me not to fry out there. That's really important. I can imagine that would be really tough to keep up your skin. Speaking of your skin, is that some, an issue as far as keeping your skin up? You are in, surrounded by salt water all day long. Mm. You're moving your body. You're sweating. Do you have any issues that come to ke keeping your skin healthy besides the sun? Um, it was a problem that I wasn't able to bathe in fresh water this time. And towards the end, I was having a recurrence of the, the salt water sores on my backside mm. that I suffered so badly from on the Atlantic. They weren't anywhere near as bad this time around. Uh, none of them got infected, uh, which is when they get really painful. Um, but... Um, just aesthetically, it's not very pleasant. Um, I mean, not that I regularly show off my bottom to people, but <laughs> um, if I could get that figured out, I, I really do think that um, if I'd have been able to bathe more in fresh water, that would have really helped. But I was having to bathe in salt water, which wasn't ideal. But hopefully next time around, a combination of gradually improving my, my cleansing techniques by um, experimenting with different products, Plus, hopefully, the next time around, not having water maker troubles, and I'll be taking at least one spare feed pump the next time around. Excellent. Um, hopefully, with regular bathing and the right choice of products, eventually, I will get it sussed out and not have these problems with salt water sores. You're going to have a lot to tell future rowers of how to do it. I'm learning a lot, mostly by trial and error. I'm learning it the hard way. But yes, I, I always like to share my experiences with other people if I can be of any help to them. It seems to be it seems to me that it must be hard to keep track of time when you take off and you're rowing and you're focusing on day to day. Do you feel like you lose track of time what day it is? Cuz no. I notice on land, <laughs> no, we have these landmarks during the day of what's going on on land and I just wonder on the ocean you definitely have the sun and the sunset, but day to day. I'm very aware of the passage of time. I I wish I could fall into this meditative state out there where I go, oh gosh, I've been rowing for 10 hours already and I hadn't even noticed. People imagine it must be sort of meditative, but the trouble is it's not usually a regular motion. I think on the days where it, I'm on flatter water and I can just get into a steady rhythm, the time does pass more easily. But those days are very few and far between. And generally it's a constant... Um, we, you know, you're trying to get both oars in the water at the same time. It's it's a bit um, chaotic out there, and that makes it very hard to get into that steady, repetitive rhythm. So generally, I am keenly aware of the passage of time, and I'm afraid there is a lot of clock watching going on, looking forward to the end of the shift. Um, but something that really did help this time around was having audio books, and to an extent, I was able to lose myself in the books. 
and um, some books just really I could escape into them and I listened to 62 books on the crossing that's fabulous oh it was great it made the world of difference to my um, my general levels of happiness out there I think there were many things that contributed to that um, one was the fact that I had one successful ocean crossing under my belt already so um, I had a bit of self-confidence knowing that I could do it, that I would find it tough, but I do actually have it within me to, to survive 100 plus days out at sea. Um, I think also I'd learned a lot of useful psychological techniques from uh, the Atlantic crossing. And um, I try and explain some of those in the book about the Atlantic that will be coming out this time next year, uh, published by Simon & Schuster. Um, and I think also just the audiobooks, because the human brain, or certainly my human brain, when it has no external stimulus, can become very kind of self-destructive. Um, it can be easy to fall into a bit of a negative spiral. And it's nice to have the mental stimulation and the distraction of a good book, be it fiction or non-fiction. And it also helped me feel like I was doing something very constructive with my time out there. It's difficult because I, I think I wouldn't have learned as much on the Atlantic if I'd been listening to books. Certainly mm. the introspection that I went through out there, although it was really, really tough at the time, was very educational, very character building. But that's because it was so brutally hard. Um, and I didn't really want to do it quite so hardcore again. So I don't feel like I'm being a wimp in listening to books. I think it's still quite tough enough. Uh, but having said that, I'm actually planning to do a meditation retreat over New Year this year um, where I will be compelled to just sit for 10 hours a day, not even rowing, just sitting. And from the people I've spoken to about these experiences, I think that is going to be mentally very challenging. And it will be interesting to be brought face to face with myself and my inner demons once again. But it's been interesting talking with these people who do these meditation retreats because they understand what I go through out there. Mm -hmm. We both know what it's like to um, just really have to confront yourself and um, those little negative voices that I think we all have in our heads. And it's so easy to distract yourself, to anaesthetize yourself by being busy, busy, busy all the time, or even when we're not being busy to watch TV or listen to the radio, listen to Nothing. music. Exactly, to always be stimulated by external input. And it is very educational just to spend time alone with yourself. Did you expect to come to that finding through this process of rowing? I think I did. When I first conceived of the idea of... Um, rowing across an ocean, I it was at a very spiritually formative stage of my life. And I had hoped it would be some kind of a spiritual retreat out there. And I wouldn't say that the Atlantic was. I, I would say that I spent far too much time feeling sorry for myself. And uh, I wouldn't say that's really very conducive to spiritual growth. But there was, after that, an intense period of spiritual growth when I was able to evaluate what I'd gone through out there and really start assimilating those lessons learned. I suppose analysing 
my experience, drawing out the lessons from it and start assimilating those lessons into my very being. And the two years since, or nearly three years now since the Atlantic Row, I would say I'm a bit older and a bit wiser. I would say that I've taken the time and the trouble to, to sit down and assess the experience. And even last year's setback, that was a very educational experience too. And in that respect, I wouldn't count last year as a failure. I would say it was a success in that I learned stuff from it. And I think anything can be deemed a success if you've taken the trouble to learn something from it. Sounds like it really helped you to prepare for successfully making it this time by making some modifications. Indeed, yeah. To the, I, I learned a lot about how to, to set up the boat. Um, but I would say also um, I learned a lot about dealing with the media and I learned that you can't please everybody all of the time and there will always be the armchair critics and people who will choose to misunderstand what I do. And without wanting to dwell on the negative too much, um, you can't please everybody all of the time. And it's important not to take that personally. Um, I, I know that my motivations are good. And um, I hope that if I carry on doing the right things for the right reasons, then um, everything will come good. And I actually firmly believe that. And great. things are going fantastically at the moment. The six weeks since I got back to dry land have been very formative, all kinds of exciting opportunities opening up. And, um, you know, watch this space. So what's happening? When are you planning to start your next crossing? From, it's um, Hawaii to Samoa? Um, hopefully Samoa, but um, the weather and the ocean may have other ideas, but we shall see. Um, that will be setting out in May in 2009. Uh, the middle of May. Right around the corner. Ah, uh, yes. Don't I know you. it. <laughs> and there's a lot to happen between now and then. But um, I tend to manage to pack a lot into a short space of time. So I'm, I'm confident it, it will all happen. So you're also planning on sharing some of these experiences through your book and also a documentary. What is the timeline of those and when may people be able to see these? Uh, the book is going to come out in October 2009 uh, to be accompanied by a book tour and hopefully a, a speaking tour as well. Um, and the documentary, um, the final film won't come out until after I've finished the last stage of my Pacific Row, which will be in 2010. So there's a while to wait for that. But in the meantime, I'm regularly posting short videos onto YouTube um, so you can go and check those out. There's a link from my website at rossavage.com. Mm -hmm. You'll see this little YouTube icon and that will take you straight to all my, my videos. And I'm very excited about a project that I was working on this last weekend. Um, just a short little four minute video which summarizes it's going to be the introduction to my new redeveloped website. And it's just basically a short summary of who I am, what I do, and why. So it's lots of mentions of the environment. And it's a really cool little video, and I'm very excited about it. So it'd be great if people go online and, and check that out. Wonderful. So that's rossavage.com. Mm -hmm. And there's also, I believe, um, past blogs that you can read from the Atlantic Row and just your recent crossing here so people can learn a little bit about 
your past roads? That's or? right. I blogged every day on my Pacific crossing to Hawaii. Um, and on the Atlantic, I blogged every day until my satellite phone failed, after which I wasn't able to post blogs. But then my mother kind of took over to describe things from her perspective, waiting for me anxiously on dry land. Um, and in fact, if you're a real glutton for punishment, there are blogs going all the way back to, I think, 2002, and certainly covering my uh, my expedition to Peru in Ooh. 2003. So there's a huge archive there. And people might also enjoy checking out the uh, the podcast that I did with a resident of Petaluma called Leo Laporte, who is a TV journalist, and he does a lot of technology shows. And he and I were doing podcasts three times a week while I was rowing to Hawaii. And a lot of people seem to have really enjoyed those. So I've listened to some of them. Too. I just had it's very surreal. I was just thinking, gosh, this woman's rowing across the Pacific phone rings hello it's just uh it was really quite entertaining i recommend that for people to listen in that was wonderful and kind of could sort of follow along with how your mood was how you were doing and you know yeah. i had wondered i was wondering about the water thing and i i kind of figured you didn't want to play it up based on the potential of what could happen mm. if somebody took that too much so i thought that was really interesting that you really kept on focus of what was going on at the time. So You know, I must listen to those sometimes as well. <laughs> and also, even while I'm on dry land, um, my life is, a, I guess, a little bit different from most people's lives. I, I travel an awful lot. I meet a lot of really fascinating people. And um, so I am still blogging about those things, even when I'm on dry land. But even more than that, I am Twittering, which, if you haven't checked it out, is quite a fun website. Um, basically, you drivel on about what you're doing from moment to moment every day. And it's all done by SMS. So no message can be more than 140 characters long. So I tend to post those, I suppose, on average three or four times a day. Wow. Just about what I'm doing on a kind of moment-by-moment basis, what my thoughts are and who I'm meeting with and um, it's just a fun little thing so those are also on my website um, they're called micro updates on my website or you can see them on twitter that's a great way to engage youth as far as keeping up with something like this have you been in touch with schools as far as i have in fact i gave a, a presentation at the urban school in san francisco um the other week and at the moment we're just piloting an online survey because as you mentioned the internet is a great way to meet um connect with the younger audience and so at the moment I am try, um, working on my social networking strategy through Facebook and MySpace and uh, all these cool applications that um, people use to make friends, connect with new friends and um, stay in touch with existing ones. So I'm really trying to use that to reach the, the 15 to 25 year olds who are the really the stewards of the environment in the future. And... Um, so kind of nurturing them, getting them involved, putting across the message that it's cool to be blue. And it's it's just a lot of fun. I'm hoping to do quite a number of talks at schools in the future because um, I enjoy them and I feel like it's really important. Um, it's kind of frightening for me when parents and teachers tell me that they think I'm a positive role model for the youngsters. <laughs> a very daunting prospect. But, um, hey, you know, I, I wish that I'd met a woman who was doing cool, adventurous stuff when I was that sort of age. And maybe we are a little bit short of positive, especially female role models. Um, so if I can help out in that way, then then great. Happy to be of service. That's wonderful, Roz. I definitely see you as a, a role model for many, both 
just everybody, um, not only women, but men, and also where we're going with trying to help protect this planet and just rising to the occasion and engaging everybody. So thanks for taking that lead. Just trying to do my bit. Well, thank you so much for joining us today in the KWMR studio. I know you are so busy right now getting all these preparations ready for your next um, crossing starting in May, and we'll keep posted to see how things go from there on. Please do. I shall aim to entertain. Thank you very much for having me on the show. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Ocean Currents. This show is brought to you by NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary on West Marin Community Radio, KWMR. Views expressed by guests on this program may or may not be that of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and are meant to be educational in nature. To learn more about Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary, go to cordellbank.noaa.gov.